Good morning. It's so good to be back with you again. I couldn't help remembering days of long, long ago as we sang that song just now, Praise the Name of Jesus. And a praise is not only something very precious to God, something he delights in receiving from his children. Praise is also something very powerful, very powerful. When we praise the name of Jesus, we're lifting up the name of Jesus against all the efforts of the evil one to damage us in one way or another. And I happened to be going through a very, very bad time. This is about 40 years ago or more. And I used to walk along Pater Road West. I lived just off Pater Road West. And I used to walk along Pater Road West singing that chorus, defying Satan as I praised the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for one another here in this place this morning. We thank you that our Lord Jesus is central in the midst of us as he promised to be. And we thank you that we have before us an open book through which you want to speak to us. And we thank you too for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will guide me as I speak and guide all of us as we react to what we read and hear today. In Jesus' name. This morning I feel led to do something a little difficult, difficult in a sense because uh, while there's one particular verse of scripture that we'll be focusing on in a special way, the context in which that verse comes is so wide it is necessary to set the scene and take some time to sort of get into the whole event that is being described. This is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned even once, but God is everywhere present. Some of you will already know where we're going this morning. We're going to the book of Esther. And let me just begin by just picking out one or two things in the story of the first part of the book. We're told that this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, who had a second name, a Hebrew name, Ahasuerus, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to the Upper Nile region. He ruled over a vast territory with a huge number of people. Uh, he reigned from his palace in Susa, Shushan, which lay some good way east of Babylon. He reigned from 485 to 465. And in the course of his reign, early in his reign, he decided to do a bit of showing off. And he had a very special display, exhibition, which lasted a full six months. At the end of the full six months, he had a whole week of banqueting, of celebration by banqueting. The men banqueted with the king in the gardens of the palace, and the queen banqueted with the ladies inside the palace. And at the end of that, of seven days of banqueting, when the men were probably all well-oiled, as we say, quite considerably drunk, the king decided he would like to display his attractive wife to his male guests, and he sent instructions for Queen Vashti to come wearing her royal crown. And the queen did the unthinkable. She refused to come. She realized she was going to be paraded before a drunken mob, and she said in effect in her heart, it's not on. 
So, of course, the king reacted in absolute fury, consulted his legal advisers what should happen, and they advised that Vashti should never again be allowed anywhere near the king's presence. You see, if she had been allowed to get away with this arrogance, this defiance of her husband, then the fear was that this would spread like an infection throughout the empire, and women would start disobeying their husbands and not respecting them, and we can't have that, can we? So Queen Vashti was banished forever from the king's presence. And that left a gap. It left a blank to be filled. And the king, after a time, decided to arrange for a great variety of young women to be brought and looked after for a period of a whole year of beauty treatments to discover who he would like best to be queen number two. And among these girls brought before the king and brought to be brought before the king eventually was one Jewish lass by the name of Esther. Her other name was Hadassah, but we know her better as Esther. And Esther, even whenever she appeared in the presence of the man who was organizing the whole event, the beauty contest, if you like, he realized she was extra lovely and extra special. And when the time came for the girls to go one by one before the king, the king immediately selected her as the person he wanted to be his new bride. Now Esther had a cousin called Mordecai, who had virtually brought her up because her own parents had died when she was very young. And Mordecai was very much a father figure to Esther and wanted to be kept in touch with what was happening to his now famous cousin. So he hung around as near to the palace gates as he dared to go and picked up all the gossip he could to see what was happening in the life of his precious cousin Esther. And one day he discovered there was a conspiracy being made by two of the guards that guarded the palace gates. They had fallen out with the king and they decided to assassinate him. And so when Mordecai heard of this plot, he reported via some intermediary to his cousin Esther that she might warn the king of this danger. And of course, the two poor fellows who were foolish enough to threaten to assassinate the king were themselves summarily put to death. And because they kept careful records of what went on in the palace, this was written up in the royal records that this man Mordecai had become aware of this conspiracy and had kindly reported it to the authorities and the king's life had been spared. The king seemed to like honouring people so he decided he wanted to find a man who would be specially honoured and become the sort of second man in the kingdom and his choice was not a very good one. He chose a man who was a thoroughly bad lot and his name was Haman. And Haman was to be honoured by the whole population. The king decided to honour Haman, and everywhere Haman went, people were to bow down before him and treat him as some kind of god. But of course, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, was like Esther, a Jew. And the Jew would not bow down before anybody but God. And so Mordecai ignored completely this instruction to bow down before Haman, 
which greatly angered Haman, as you can imagine. Just to indicate how ruthless this man was and how awful he was, he decided he would not just make sure that Mordecai was put to death, he would arrange for a holocaust. He would arrange for all the Jews throughout this vast empire to be exterminated. Oh, what an incredible thing to contemplate and plan to do. <coughs> he told the king that there was people in his empire who didn't just obey all his laws and who were different and had their own rules and regulations and laws and were separate and simply wouldn't be willing to submit to all the king's rules and authority. And it wasn't in the king's interest to tolerate such people. So the king decided it was okay for him and to organize the extermination of all the Jews. Now, we're going to read in chapter 4 and pick up on the story at this point. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, this was the plot of Haman to exterminate all the Jews in the empire. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay on sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to wear, but he wouldn't put them on. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation which had been published in Susa to show Esther and to explain it to her and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king and she was his wife. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. So Mordecai has urged Esther to plead with the king for mercy. And she is bold enough to approach the throne and to her wonder, perhaps her amazement, her joy, the king extends the golden scepter inviting her to come into his presence. He senses that there's something she wants to ask for. He says, what is it you want to ask for? And her answer is a bit strange perhaps to us. She said, well, I really would like you and Haman to come tomorrow to a banquet I've arranged for you. Oh, we like banquets, we'll do that. So Haman went home all bright and happy, hearing that he was invited to dine the next day with the king and the queen. But as he reported to his wife, he finished up by saying, but none of this gives me no any pleasure, as long as that Jew Mordecai will not bow down before me. Ah, his wife says, no problem. Build a garrow 75 feet high and hang the bloke, hang this Mordecai on the gallows. Get rid of him. So Haman plans to do just that. Now, the next day, the king and Haman dine with Esther. And again, the king asks her, what is it you want me to do for you? <laughs> and her reply is even more strange this time. She said, well, what I really would like you to do would be to come to another banquet tomorrow. Just the two of you. Oh, well, well, that's all right. We'll go to a second banquet. So the second banquet takes place. But before that second banquet takes place, the king has a sleepless night. Must have eaten something he didn't agree with him in the first bite. In a sleepless night, actually God kept him awake. And in his sleeplessness, he sent for the royal records to be read, just to pass the time or whatever. And as the royal records were read, he discovered, it was recorded, that this man Mordecai, this Jew, had been aware of this conspiracy and had reported it, and thanks to him, the king's life was spared. He said, what's been done for this man? What's been done for him? answer, nothing. Oh, that's not good enough. So in the morning, when Haman comes in, he says to Haman, there's somebody I would really like to honour. What do you think I should do by way of honouring him? Oh, the time Haman thinks to himself, who would the king want to honour more than me? So the Haman proposes, let this man you want to honour be dressed in one of the king's robes that the king has worn and ride in one of the king's horses the king has ridden and led through the city and everybody bowing down and honouring this man. And then the bubble is burst as the king says to Haman, go and do this for Mordecai. Oh, oh, what a blow to Haman's pride. And what a step to Mordecai's safety and blessing. Well, Haman is in a bad way now and ends up being hanged himself as the story unfolds. At the second banquet, on the second day, the king puts the same question for the third time. Esther 
what is it you really want me to do for you? And so she begins to plead with him for a reversal of this edict that has been sent throughout the empire to guarantee the extermination of all the Jews. And the king is horrified. Who would ever want to plan such a thing as that? Because he knows who's planned it. And Esther says it's this vile Haman. And the king goes out in a rage to the garden to get some fresh air. And Haman, foolish man, comes and pleads with Esther to try and get the king to spare him. And the king comes back into the palace and discovers Haman just about lying on the same couch as his wife. And of course he is livid and condemns Haman to the gallows. Now before we look at the key verse in this passage, let me just say that the chapter we didn't read, one of the chapters we didn't read records that in deciding the day when this assassination of all the Jews should take place, they cast a lot, cast lots. And the word for lot is pur, P-U-R. And to this day, the Jewish people celebrate as the last of their great annual festivals, the festival of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. When the book of Esther is always read, so this book of Esther is the best known part of the Old Testament to all the Jewish people throughout the world. In times of persecution, Esther has encouraged the Jewish people to believe God for protection, for deliverance, for survival. But for all of us, this book of Esther, you see, portrays God in his behind-the-scenes activity, overruling in the affairs of individuals, of families, and even of nations. So what is this key verse in this whole book? Well, I read it to you. It's verse 14 of chapter 4. It's a very precarious situation. If it goes wrong, it's bad news for Esther and for Mordecai and for all the Jews. But in replying to one of Esther's comments and questions, Mordecai says, Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? Now it's unfortunate the new NIV translates that as royal position. She had come to royal position. She was the queen after all. But the literal word in the original is kingdom. The old King James Version translates correctly. Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a power time as this. And here you see Esther carried that heavy, heavy responsibility of risking her life in order to try and rescue her people. So let's just think for a moment or two, first of all, about this phrase for such a time as this. Each of us is aware that we're living through particular times in our own individual lives, in our family situations, in the history of our nation, particularly after Thursday. For such a time as this. But you see, throughout all the generations, there are certain things that are always going on at any time. What are they? Well, there's oppression. This was a time when this man, Haman, was so satanically inspired that he sought to destroy all the Jews in the empire. 
was a time of oppression. But anti-Semitism didn't start then. And it continues to the present day in many places. We go back to the book of Exodus. What do we find? We find Moses being told by God, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt because they had been reduced to slavery and poverty and hardship and cruelty. And God says, I'm coming to do something about it. And what's more, Moses, I'm involving you. And he was 80 years of age. Oh, starting his most important work at 80 years of age. I like that. So then we move on to the book of Judges. And we find in Judges, again, the people of God, the Jewish people, are oppressed. Their enemies, the Midianites and others, they're raiding and they're stealing their crops and their cattle and they're terrifying the Jews and the Jews are hiding to try and protect themselves from these oppressive foes. And God comes to a young man called Gideon. Timid young man, really. And God addresses him as a mighty warrior and says, I'm sending you to deal with this situation. And he did. Remember our Lord Jesus is described in the book of Acts as having been anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power and going about doing good and healing all who are oppressed, were oppressed by the devil. The devil is up to this all the time. All over the world, people right now are being oppressed in one way or another, a great variety of ways. But the devil who seeks to destroy life and spoil life. <coughs> Oppression. But oppression is a close ally of opposition. People oppress other people because they are opposed to them. They, they disagree with them. They're against them for one reason or another. Yet in writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, I am going to stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because there is a great door of opportunity for me here. But there are many who oppose me. Now the Christian is warned by the Lord Jesus that just as the world has hated me, he said, they're going to hate you. And we have that in common with the Jewish people, that we are hated. Why are the Jewish people hated? Because they're different. Because they're separate. Because they are blessed by God. The number of Jewish people who have prospered and risen to the top in different varieties of activity and professions and so on, it's outstanding. And people resent the Jewish people and persecute them. And people resent us, who are Christians, because they won't fall in with their ways, which are often not right and not good. But to see side by side with oppression and opposition come opportunity. And this was the opportunity of Esther's lifetime. It was an enormous privilege to have been made queen of this whole vast empire. But what she was being called to do now was far more important, far more significant than being the wife of a king. Opportunity. And if we just take a moment to see places where this word is used in scripture. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, and these are words I'm sure many of us are very familiar with. 
He says there in Ephesians chapter 5, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because, he says, the days are evil. Ah, so if we who are Christians are called to make the most of the opportunity, we're given one of the main reasons for doing so. Because we live in a world where evil abounds. There is evil on every hand. We're all familiar with all the sort of things that happen. We get it in the news every day. And we are God's agents in this situation. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And then we can go, for example, to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, where there's a general instruction. As we have opportunity, says Paul, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, to fellow Christians. So we're being encouraged to use the gifts God has given us, to use the time God has given us, to use the opportunities God gives us, to be effective agents of our loving Heavenly Father and our risen and glorious Lord. For such a time as this, you have come to the kingdom. How? How do we who were once unbelievers, we didn't know Jesus in our early life, how have we come to the point where we are kingdom people? Well, first of all, we're being attracted. Jesus said, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And that word draw means to attract. To attract. And while Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah and described him as unattractive outwardly, yet we know that the Jesus who laid down his life on the cross, who was willing to give himself for our salvation, the minute the Holy Spirit really enables us to understand the significance of that, the implications of that, that we who have been extricated from the presence of God by our sinfulness, by our waywardness, we can be brought in, we can be saved from our sin, we can be made new because of one man's death, because Jesus was willing to bear our sins in his body on the tree. And when we're aware of our sin, when the Holy Spirit disturbs us and makes us aware that we need to be saved from our sin, otherwise we're in big trouble, Jesus becomes incredibly attractive. Is that how you see Jesus this morning? I do. Somebody incredibly attractive. Nobody else could save me from my sin. But he can, and he did. And he goes on this morning all over the world People who a few hours ago were unbelievers, unsaved, are seeing Jesus and coming to him in repentance and faith and being saved by this person who has suddenly become so attractive. We're attracted by him. We're accepted by him. To the Roman Christians, Paul wrote, accept one another as Christ accepted you. Now we've kind of reversed the order of that, haven't we? Because we talk about our accepting Christ as though that was the biggest thing that ever happened. No, it's not. The biggest thing that ever happened is that he accepts us. Who would want to have something to do with somebody like me, Sandy McKeith? You wouldn't like to know the unregenerate Sandy McKeith. I wasn't a very nice person to know. But Jesus accepted me. And he accepted you who know him this morning. 
It's not just that we accept him, that's true, that's only half the truth. The more glorious part of the truth is that he accepts us. He accepts us as we are, warts and all, sins and all. But it doesn't leave us that way. He forgives us and he saves us. More than that, we're adopted. Predestined to be adopted into the family of God, as Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians. Adopted. Now, some children are enjoying life with natural parents. Others, my own late wife included, were adopted and enjoyed life by being adopted by wonderful Christian parents. Otherwise, she might have ended her life in some home or other with a child or a teenager. But no, she was adopted by loving Christian parents. And you and I who know Jesus, we're adopted by the Father into his family and given security in that adopted relationship. And more than that, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. We're almost afraid of this word anointed sometimes, I feel, but it shouldn't be because it's very common in Scripture. And here Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. In the Old Testament, the people in leadership positions, prophets, priests, kings, they were anointed with oil as a symbol of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit is given to believers. We come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the best strength we have is our own strength, and it's not adequate, it's not fit for purpose. But God doesn't leave us like that. When God saves us from our sin, he anoints us with his spirit. He equips us with power to live differently. Ah, ah. Why, why should he do all this for us? Because, you see, some Christians seem to think really all that matters is that we get our sins forgiven and we're then fit to go to heaven when we die. That's only part of the story. It's the further on part. But what about the present time part? In the present time, while we're still alive on planet Earth, God gives us the enormous privilege of working, working in partnership with him to bring to pass things he wants to bring to pass on planet Earth. And these can be summed up under three headings here. He wants us to be prophetic. You remember when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he, not surprisingly, took his text from the prophecy of Joel written 400 years before. And in that prophecy of Joel, which Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost, he, re- he proclaimed these words, Even in my servants, says God, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now some people quite mistakenly say, Oh, that's just another name for preaching. No, it's not another name for preaching. Preaching is what I'm doing now. Prophesying is different. Prophesying is hearing from God something he wants to say through A-B to A to B. And passing on to an individual, to a group, to a small group, to a larger group. Something God wants to say at that point in time. That's prophecy. And it's thrilling. It's thrilling. When we know, we know, we know that God is actually saying something to us. That he wants us to say to some individual and he leads us to that individual. Or he wants us to say to some group and he leads us to that group. And these words are released. Prophetic words from the heart of God. 
into a particular situation. That's prophecy. And Paul encourages us to seek prophecy above all the other gifts of the Spirit. This very great gift, which is a very useful thing, and God blesses it and uses it. Then we're also called to be priestly. You see, in being prophetic, we're reaching out to other human beings. In being priestly, we're reaching up to God on behalf of other human beings, and more than that. Because Peter says, in Second First Peter chapter 2, you remember he says this, he tells us that every Christian is a priest. It's a great shame and a great cause of confusion that a certain denomination, or more than one denomination, actually calls only people who are in leadership of a particular kind priests. That is a misuse of scripture. One of the great Reformation truths that emerged was what's called the priesthood of all believers. Every believer is called to be a priest because Peter says so. Writing to Christians in general, he says, As you come to him, to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be what? To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, unholy people can't offer spiritual sacrifices to God. They can't offer any acceptable sacrifice to God because they're unholy. But we who become Christians become a holy people. We talk about singing, we sometimes sing about lifting up holy hands and they say, oh, I'm not sure I could lift my hands up because I don't think they're very holy. Listen, if God says you're holy, you're holy. But it has to be worked out in our lives, of course. But he has made us holy. And we become a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Think of all the people this morning, reading the Sunday papers, wandering around a golf course. That's a pretty second best isn't it a very poor second best to being together in the act of worship as we've been this morning because you see our worship is a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God he loves it he desires it he never can get enough of it in a sense and we do it so often in rare and small quantities God loves our priestly offering and more in the second, same chapter in First Peter chapter 2 Peter goes on to say you're a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light prophetic priestly and kingly you and I who belong to Jesus are called to be a kingly people we represent the one who is the king of kings and Lord of Lords. And Christians need to get hold of the fact that with all our failures, our imperfections, God wants us to be kingly. In our prophetic role, we are reaching out to other human beings. In our priestly role, we are reaching out to God, offering praise and worship and interceding on behalf of others. In our kingly role, we are confronting the evil one. And he needs some confronting in these days. We are confronting the evil one in our kingly role. And if we go to Romans chapter 5, what do we find Paul saying there to Christians? He says, If by the trespass of one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more? 
for those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness. That's us. We who belong to Jesus, we who know Jesus, we have received God's provision of grace. He has saved us by his grace. We have received his gift of righteousness. We are righteous in his eyes. It's so good to know that. And Paul says, those who have received God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the present. Not talking about the future. Reign in the present through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, there are far too many Christians in the church of Jesus of whom Satan has little reason to be afraid. But I'm not one of them. Because, you see, I understand by the grace of God, by the revelation of Scripture, that my attitude to Satan is one of kingliness. I'm a king in relation to him. I'm given authority over him, Jesus said so in Luke chapter 10. I've given you authority, he said to these disciples in addition to the twelve, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And I tell you, when Satan's giving you a hard time, you've got to exercise that authority. You've got to stand against him. Now, I want to sum up this way. At home, I have got to a stage in life when, before bringing a message, a sermon, to a congregation, I preach it to myself. And I'm not happy, I'm not comfortable in preaching it to myself until I reach the point where it's gripping me where it's doing something to me and yesterday morning I said Lord I haven't, just haven't quite got there yet what's wrong, what's missing he directed me to John chapter 3 very very familiar words what do we find in John chapter 3 the conversation that Nicodemus the Jewish ruler who came to Jesus by night had with our Lord Jesus in private Jesus said to this man, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one phrase that is widely misunderstood by Christian people and I have come to believe and I believe I'm right that the kingdom of God always should be understood primarily as God's kingly power breaking through into situations and inevitably changing them for the better and here is Jesus saying to this Jewish man he first talks about seeing the kingdom now, interestingly, in Greek there are several different words which mean see. And the word that Jesus used here means to see with understanding. Oh, there are lots of things that you and I see but don't understand. You see some high-tech equipment and I haven't a clue how it would work. Not a clue. I can see it. But I haven't a clue as to how it works. Ah, but... You see, when we not only see something, but see with understanding, see how this actually fits into my life today. Oh yes, that's different. And Jesus is talking first about seeing the kingdom of God. And he goes a stage further. And he says, 
the person who doesn't isn't who was born again of the Holy Spirit, born of water, baptism, and the Spirit, can enter, can enter the realm of the kingdom. And in Matthew 17, Matthew 12, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God suffering violence and violent men taking it by force. I may have shared this illustration with you before, but what helps me to understand what this is all about. I picture the kingdom of God as a moving train and it's coming through this station. It's not stationary. It's not dead safe to get onto it, but it's highly desirable to get on that train. And I realise this is my chance. Instead of just walking down the road to the next town, I can get on that train and I can get there quickly and easily because I'm using the power of that train. And when I appreciate that the kingly power of God is available to me, and I say, well, I know it's risky, I know it's risky, but I'll go for it. And I say, well, I'll jump onto the train. I don't just see the kingdom and understand how wonderful and how powerful it is. I want to be involved. I want the kingdom of God to be involved in my life. Do you? You see, we're not meant to struggle. Many Christians struggle and say, well, why am I always failing? Why am I always yielding to temptation? Why can I not live a purer, more holy life? Why this, why that, why the next thing? And part of the answer is, people try to do it in their own ability. It doesn't work. It was never meant to work that way. Jesus said you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Think of the kingdom in terms of that kingdom power the Holy Spirit makes available to us. See, what thrills me about this is that here is Esther being challenged by her cousin to risk her life in the faith that God is involved in what's happening here and of course he was and would be in the consequences. She was to risk her life in the faith that God was involved in this. This is your moment of destiny, he's saying to her. And you and I, you see, have the purpose of God, perhaps moments of destiny that we don't realise quite what they are. You know, we used to sing an old hymn that I thought was rubbish. The old hymn said, There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. Haste to do his bidding, yield himself is true. There's a work for Jesus none but you can do. It's rubbish. There's lots of work that other people could do as well as I can. But I saw with a little more revelation and a little more understanding of Scripture, and the hymn writer was correct. Because you see, we're all different. Totally different. Well, not totally different, but we're all different in various ways. Each individual is unique. All of us are differently programmed, differently gifted, different personalities. So the things that you can do that I couldn't do the things that I can do that you can't do it's true for Esther there was a work for God that in that moment in history only she could do it may be within the next week within the next month you will have some kind of encounter that takes you by surprise you may meet someone you either don't know at all or you meet someone and think, well, it's just another meeting we've met many times before. But on that particular occasion, 
It's what we call a kairos moment because that's a Greek word for time that is right now. A kingdom time. Who knows? But that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you sense that? Do you sense that, you know, God has designed you uniquely and gifted you and equipped you uniquely to be the Esther in a situation like that? Dangerous to a certain extent. And yet thrilling to be God's person, God's man, God's woman in that situation. And to realize that God is using someone like me, someone like you, to do something very special that often has eternal consequences. Who knows? But that you and you and you and you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, we confess sometimes in our foolishness we say silly things like expressing the desire that we had lived however many years ago in days when your church was living in revival and wonderful things were happening that we've never experienced. Help us to abandon such thoughts and rather to realize that we're living in a time that you have planned for us to live. You have brought us to your kingdom. You have brought us to life in Christ at this particular time in history when certain opportunities arise when certain needs are to be met when certain people are to be blessed and you want to involve us in doing some of these very very special things that you require a human being to do under your control and direction help us to realise the wonder of this the privilege of this and as it were to look into each new day, each new week, wondering, will this be one of those days, one of those weeks, when there is a kingdom moment, a kairos time, when God will use me to do something, to say something very, very important, very significant, perhaps with eternal consequences for somebody else. We ask this in Jesus' name.